The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Hello, I am Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about the personal side of climate change. And in this podcast, we focus on climate emotions, our climate feelings, and our, by, by extension, our coping and how we get through the day. And you can support us uh, at our Patreon, and you can always find us in all of our past episodes at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Mm. Yes, and today... We are going to speak about also climate change, even though we are starting from quite concrete thing, namely trains and what can happen happen with them. Uh, it was just minor news in Finland, but Thomas, you told me about this train disaster in East Palestine in Ohio in the U.S., and that was quite something when I took a more explicit look at the links you sent me so what what's going on 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 there there thomas well thanks for asking panu yeah this is an issue that's i think getting more press in the united states because of uh all the different complexities of it and i think it's a great it's not a fun topic to get into it's a really messy topic mm -hmm. but i think in terms of our goals with this podcast of of, of thinking about how we can actually mm -hmm. have happiness and well-being in this era of climate change we we need to kind of um deal with these kinds of things and so we know that there was a uh, a train derailment in this in this community on february 3rd a long train just like what happens in the united states a uh, long train full of different kinds of cars and we know and unlike other countries the united states although all the rail is private so there's private companies that own the trains and own the tracks um and this particular um train derailed um, in a small community, a rural community that has been economically depressed. Um, it's much like where I grew up in, in Western New York and Buffalo, New York, former manufacturing um, community that's been on experiencing hard times. And this, um, this train had several cars uh, that were car uh, carrying toxic substances, vinyl, vinyl chloride, PVC, and various, um, various chemicals that I, I would have to look at my list to see butylacrylate, isobutylene, basically uh, industrial chemicals that are toxic to people and to other animals. And um, mm. as people in the U.S. know, this 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 massive pileup of cars, and then there was the danger of an explosion. Um, so they had to uh, uh, purposely burn off a lot of these chemicals, creating a, a huge kind of um, <clears throat> ominous dark cloud over the community. Um and it's really insidious. It's a great example of a technological disaster um, because it's the dark cloud, it's the chemicals, it's the mystery of what this means for people in the community and the ominous things that happen, fish dying in local streams, farm animals dying, 
we can get into more of the psychological manifestations of this, but it's just a, it's just kind of a mess. Uh, and then of course it's been, um, polarized by different opportunistic mm. politicians arriving on the scene and people using it to beat up on each other, the different political parties here. Mm. Um, and then the, the, the community kind of caught in the middle. And then there's even been um, conspiracy theories uh, and, and various mm. things. So it, it, it takes us to the dark side of the, the, uh, the, the psyche here in the U.S. and other countries. Mm. Are you familiar with things like these chemical spills and train wrecks in Finland? I know. Again, another credit to your country. I, I did realize in my research that Finland has some of the safest train systems in the world. Uh but uh, do you, are you familiar with these things happening near nearby to you? Well, it surely is quite different from my travels in the U.S. I noticed that the trains can be very, very long. And Finland so far has just a state railway company, which is pretty, pretty good. But then um, because of the zeitgeist, the times in which we live, there's discussion that whether that should be privatized. Mm-hmm. And that's a big discussion. And, but mm-hmm. the experiences from any of the countries where the railroad companies get privatized, they are not exactly encouraging, I, I, I think. But uh, this also brings into mind, of course, anxiety and worry. And my research has been dealing more with them sort of a bit more uh, abstract and large-scale anxieties and worries, although I've often made the point both in writing and in speech that what we nowadays call eco-anxiety can be also related to more particular things and not just climate. So climate anxiety is one big part of eco-anxiety, but this case also reminds us, as you hinted, when we talked about this, that environmental anxiety as a concept uh, seems to originate from things a bit like this, uh, anxiety and worry about chemicalization and that sort of thing. So so you you know that history way better than I, I, I do. So what, what's your thoughts, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's good to talk about it. I'd like to think of this episode as a primer for how to cope with this these kinds of issues, because it's very easy to feel like a victim and to feel powerless and... Um, hopeless. And I think the first step is to really, like with all the issues that we talk about, you know, eco-grief, eco-depression, eco-anxiety, um, thinking them as as doorways and not walls, like they're, they're doorways to pass through that we, we, we can become bigger and we can learn how to cope with this. So I think having a growth mindset about these things that we can, in fact, evolve and grow to be able to cope with these things and take action to prevent them uh, in the future is the, is the mindset to start, um, here. And so I, I would encourage the listeners to really think of this as a, as a, as a primer, um, even though the train derailment might not be as directly linked in people's minds with other climate uh, and environmental issues. It, it does play into our general pool of worry as researchers talk about, we have a pool of worry in our mind, uh, and an ambient level of daily daily stressors that we have to put up with in terms of global consciousness. And so this is, the trains are obviously running all the time and we have a thousand train derailments a year in the, in the United States. And mm-hmm. so these are happening all the time, but we don't, we, we can kind of move it out of our mind temporarily until something like this happens. And then it reminds us of reality. So I think, I think, I think we can imagine ways to deal, be the, be our best selves, to be the best person that we can. When, when we deal with this kind of thing, you know, and I, I know you and I have talked about this, but you know, when I, when I first 
as a psychologist started studying climate change, I, I, I had to look into the disaster psychology literature and the research on disasters in general. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I learned that, you know, researchers tend to distinguish between natural disasters and technological disasters, natural disasters, you know, happen um, without necessarily a human cause. Uh, technological disasters like this train derailment do have some sort of human cause, a human error, human negligence, human mistake, because the the trains are meant to be safe and they're supposed to be regulated. So something went wrong somewhere, and technically someone's responsible for that. And uh, unlike, say, the the recent earthquakes in Syria and Turkey, even though they have a human a human aspect in terms of maybe poor or construction rules or building rules, no one is necessarily to blame for the earthquake itself happening. And so we tend to band together to try to help people and we celebrate, we celebrate the survivors. But you'll notice the news, there's no celebration in East Palestine. There's no celebration. It's all negative because these technological disasters expose um, inequality and negligence and corruption and lack of regulation and these sacrificed communities, these marginalized communities. And so these, unfortunately, these technological disasters tend to drive people apart. Mm-hmm. They, 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 uh, they separate people on existing, on existing divisions. Mm-hmm. So the people in East Palestine already feel marginalized. They already feel left out economically. Uh, and they're already prone to, to, to hating uh, outsiders and not trusting outsiders. And so, when that when an accident like this happens, it just it just widens those 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 existing divisions and makes everyone feel bad, mm. promotes distrust, and some of it is realistic because we don't know uh, how this these vinyl chlorides are going to affect the the water and the wells, and we don't know exactly. I haven't seen any way direct direct research on why the fish died, like what exactly ha- happened from that. Mm. So it is very mysterious. And as the news shows, the people that are worried about their long-term health, their children, their their property, their property values. Um, so it's 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 right for them to be to be concerned. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, and uh, as you say. Uh, this has strong elements of environmental justice yes. or eco justice issues, and and that's some something to be kept kept in mind, and something again which is worse in the U.S. than in Finland, but we have our share of that also, and part of that is related to how the Sami people, the indigenous people in the north of Scandinavia and Nordic countries are treated, but also in, in urban areas. But uh, when I'm teaching courses at the University of Helsinki, which I sometimes do, I often show the students some video material about environmental racism and they are very 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 surprised about you know the role of the chip code in the u.s predicting health and mm-hmm. uh, and life issues and that sort of thing so it seems that we are de- dealing with quite deeply ingrained issues yeah and just just so listeners are clear about that the idea of you know zip code you know, predicts lifespan. So depending on where you live in the U.S., you know, we can you kind of predict someone's lifespan just on their community and the level of, of prosperity and, and health and economic development in their in their community. And so, yes, we've 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 got all of that happening here. So one way to think about this on a on a more um, growthful perspective is it's a teachable moment. Mm. 
it's an opportunity for us to stop and to breathe and to collect our nervous system uh, and uh, remind ourselves of our values. Again, this is the process I use with people when I'm working on this. We stop, we, we, we collect ourselves, we t- you know, give ourselves the benefit of a growth mindset, and we remind ourselves of our values. Our, people are concerned about this because their values are threatened. Uh, values of natural, um, the natural balance, the natural order of things, the rights of people, the rights of other species. Everyone across the political spectrum wants a safe and healthy life mm. for themselves. That's a that's a common human human goal. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or just mm-hmm. just just making it through the day. Everyone wants to be safe, safe and happy. And so, um, you know, these values are all all. Um, toxified we could say or threatened when something like this happens so you know there's a there's an empowerment in understanding how our minds work and how our emotion systems work mm. and we realize oh my values are under threat you know things that i hold dear are under threat um and then of course we we can start to think about okay where do i get my information how do i educate myself have i been doing my doom scrolling on the news and realizing that the news, the various news sources are are sometimes biased, um, and there's a lot of static among the different uh, perspectives because there's so much mystery uh, in some of the in some of the outcomes. Um, and then we can decide whether we want to t- get into this further and educate ourselves about this, and what level we want to become active in this. And that is an existential decision, right? I, I we haven't quite talked about that in our podcast directly but you know it, it's it, it's it's in described in your recent in your recent research and papers you know there's a distancing a healthy distancing about how much do we want to take on of this and can we take a break right so again we're we're, we're if listeners can imagine coming from a center coming from a, a place of control and choice um that's a, that's a that's a place to start it's um just the other technological disaster aspects that are helpful to remind ourselves. You know, we talked about the social justice issues and the mystery of these chemical things. I mean, an earthquake is this devastating, but it's not mysterious. We know what happens. It shakes the ground, buildings collapse, then it stops, and then we rebuild. So it's relatively simple to understand for our human minds. But the, the spilling of a, of a chemical that's never existed in history into the environment we actually don't know what's going to happen with that chemical we literally do not know and it's so it's very it's very mysterious and it's hard to mm-hmm. cope with um and um yeah there's a there's a post-mortem where people are seeking uh who's responsible and they're wanting to place blame uh and then they look back on warning signs and of course it's incredible with this train if you look into it Someone was able to find some security footage from a nearby factory that showed the train going by in the, in the dark of the night, and you could see the flames coming off of the wheels, you know, as it flo- as it rolled by. So we're, we were amazingly able to track what happened with this wreck, even though there's a diffusion of there's a diffusion of responsibility. Mm. People can have physiological symptoms just from stress. So in the news, talks about residents having rashes and various other mysterious physical physical symptoms, and they're not sure if they're from the chemicals. Mm. But the insidious thing is that just from stress alone, 
we can develop rashes. So some of these symptoms that people are having are psychological symptoms. They're real mm -hmm. and they are suffering, but they aren't necessarily associated with the chemicals and it's really hard to tell the difference. Yeah, that's, it's very tricky when there's this uncertainty element and invisi invisibility included. And this also reminded me of the risk perception research around climate change mm -hmm. where folks have been like Paul Slovic, for example, and George Marshall, who in his book about climate communication is discussing this and interviewing Slovic. And the difficulty with climate change being that it's often so invisible and even the weather, weather impacts, there's a certain certain ambiguity and um, different people can try to find different elements from their personal histories and, and link, link, link those better events with, with that. But uh, with technology, if there's something new coming, uh, which then can be pinpointed, then it's a lot easier for people to react and it brings an, an object and perhaps also a sort of visible enemy if you want to oppose that. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so there's... So this un unknown risk or then dread risk, as Slovic calls some of these very serious risks, which may be quite long and radiation is one, 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 one of those. So, so there's some, some links with this climate, climate change psychology here also. Yeah, and um, that's where we can use this uh, pragmatically. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about in my writing and in this book project that I'm working on. You know, how do we use some of these situations to our benefit? Um, mm. um, what researchers have found is that, you know, we get numb to large numbers, right? So a thousand mm. uh, train derailments, it's hard to, that seems like a lot, but it actually leads us to more habituate to it. Oh, well, there's a thousand of them. So um, I get, you kind of get used to these, the, the large numbers. So we get numbed, unfortunately, to, you know, thousands or millions of people. We get numbed to the number of climate refugees, you know, the statistics. We get numbed to large statistics, whereas individual personal stories really still activate us uh, and make things more meaningful for us. So that's, that's part of the... Uh, part of the opportunity with an issue like the Palestine trail train derailment is that it's, it's an opportunity to see a real story in real time with real people. Mm. And it actually is much, we're less numb to it. And mm. paradoxically, that's a good thing. Uh, Cause we are, we want to be able to feel and numbness mm. isn't our, isn't our friend. So, um, you know, um, there, there, that's why this is a teachable moment that it might um, potentially lead to better uh, regulation of these trains if we can push through the moment. And that's where the politics come in and the action, because there is a moment, a window, as we know from politics, there's a certain window of opportunity when the public is open mm. to do things. And if we can act, we, we can put some simple regulations in place labeling trains better so the communities know what chemicals and 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 um because this train wasn't even labeled as toxic um so some of the toxic train protection rules wouldn't have even have been at play but you know this is an opportunity to, to tighten up the rules and regulations it doesn't mean we have to nationalize and you know take away the private company's rights in this in this case but it does require some logical rules and regulations so there's an opportunity here mm -hmm.
if listeners are inspired, they can see what's happening in their states and try to be involved in that because there's a window. Mm. But what will happen, as we know, unfortunately, is that corporate um, lobbyists and people that are working toward purely promotion of profit will immediately try to fight against the regulation and try to delay, try to hold off, try to stop the legislators from making the regulations until the public forgets and they move on. The same thing that's happened, obviously, with climate change, the delayism. So this, this moves us into the, into the realm of politics here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very, very, very true, true. And uh, vigilance uh, is, is a con- concept which could be discussed more in the eco-emotion and climate emotion discourses also. So sort of eco-vigilance, you know, the ability to stay stay sort of alert, not too alert, but you, you pay, pay attention and you collectively try to uh, t- take care that different no- norms are being followed and very often it, it it requires wake up calls every now now and now and then yeah vigilance yes uh you know like churchill said you know the price of freedom is eternal vigilance right so the pre- the, the mm. price of uh the price of uh you know ecological um ecological sustainability is is eternal vigilance because we have to stay on this um so anyway i we're not it's not that we're forcing listeners to to go into action, but we're saying one direction is action in, in looking at your state and community. I know in um, Washington state, they tried to regulate um, some of these trains and then um, the federal government stopped it because it was, it was seen as suppressing uh, the market and suppressing profits. And so we, this takes us into the whole economic system. I know Portland, my city is trying to regulate the trains. We have our own issue. So even if listeners just looked at what what trains moved through their communities, that would be that would be a start. Portland has to deal with uh, coal coal trains moving through and various things here. The same kind of issues. Uh, and um, I know states of Idaho and other states are actually trying to fight city the city of portland regulations because they're saying it hurts their economy right so you know that's where it gets messy we have to get into the politics if if we actually want to make change now not everyone needs to do that but someone needs to do that and if we're not doing it at least we can talk to our legislators or maybe contribute to a group that is working on this kind of thing mm-hmm. but again it comes down to our the choices that we make um about what our values are and what what issues we want to um, take on, uh, because we can't take on everything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, this also reminds me of a case in early personal his, history in the nineteen eighties, uh, the community where I grew up. We talked about this a bit in some of our very early early episode of this podcast. It had a medium size sawmill, and that was a big part of the e- economy of the whole whole little little town. And then in the eighteenth, it, it became apparent that chloryl phenol a chemical had leaked into the groundwater, and people had been drinking that for a, for a while. And uh, 
the Ministry of the Environment had just been established in Finland, like just some some time ago, and that was the first a complex eco-social case mm. for the whole Ministry of the Environment in Finland, and that uh, that turned out to be a big learning experience. It didn't go too well. To, to begin with, there wasn't enough skills of negotiation, and it got got quite heated between the sawmill who tried to uh, deny responsibility, and mm-hmm. people were of course scared. You know, there's this unknown uh, risk and also dread risk ele- ele- element and that sort of thing. But but eventually, that case led into better practices and better legislation, and finally also for this small town of Karkula. Uh, they reached an agreement about them uh, clean, cleaning up the chemical things and reached some uh, also agreement with, with the sawmill saw and that sort of thing. But it was a very long process. And as a kid, I've also been drinking some chlorophenol, but luckily, apparently, it didn't cause much much trouble in my, my body. There was some increase in cancer rates. In, in town, but it was very difficult to prove scientifically mm-hmm. the cause and effect. So that's, of course, often a very tricky thing in these kinds of contaminations. But I really appreciate you, Thomas, uh, sort of speaking about these uh, opportunities for learning and change and action, which, which these moments also bring. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's it's we need to stop and just have grief grief for this situation. It's a sad situation. It's a troubling situation. People are injured. Animals have died. Um, a community is impacted. So that's normal. It's a normal to feel sad here. Uh, but we also have other emotions that we can we can move through. I mean, so again, the, the coping steps are to remind ourselves this is an ecological issue. It's linked to our system. You know, it's linked to all different aspects of our natural world and the the economy and politics and um looking at our feelings as we're talking about and realizing we can decide what we want to feel we can also feel curious we can feel patient we can feel um you know angry we can feel inspired a, a missing step is actually looking at our own impacts like how is this issue actually literally affecting me in east palestine you know, when I when I did the research uh, years ago on climate change, we we identified that emotional impacts. Even if you're not in the location where the event's happening, you can still feel impacted by it. Mm. Even if you're thousands of miles away and those chemicals aren't literally coming to you at all, you still feel bad. And that is exactly what's happening here with this Palestine, and we don't even realize it. It's just happening. Wow, I'm I'm upset by something that I only know about through the news uh but then we can start to think about our values and and um the people we want to be and then we can decide if we want to particularly take action on this on this issue or other issues because we can't take action on everything um so there is there are some steps as you know that we can we can cope uh and break it down for people mm-hmm. um so it is an op- it is an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, once again, the balancing act uh, between not uh, staying totally away and, and being exposed to these particularizing media stories, which can can uh, co- arouse empathy or uh, righteous moral outrage in us, and we need that. To, to act, but then also not to follow these 
very lively particularizing stories all the time because then there's the pro- um, problem of compassion fatigue and those kinds of e- effects. So once again, coming also back to this the, the tricky but very necessary balance. Yeah, because um, I mean, there's a quote from my um, Insight Meditation Timer app that I get a nice quote every day uh, when I try to do my meditation. And there's a quote I saw recently from Tama Children, a spiritual teacher. You know, fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Mm. It was a profound quote and I've thought about, but you know, our fear and our, our concerns are because we're touching on the truth. We're touching on the, these, these, these events like the East Palestine derailment remind us of the truth of the world, the truth of our world, the truth of our systems, the truth of our economy, the truth of our technology. And it, it, it's scary and it's painful, but do we want to live in truth? Or do we want to live in numbing and denial? That's the choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's. I think. I think most people would choose, even though it's difficult, to want to live in the truth. And so that's the that's the existential start here. Mm-hmm. Easy to say, harder to do, because as you said, our minds do want to get too much truth. Is hard to handle. <laughs> Interbeing and being connected with nature opens us up to this dark ecology of. Um, of pain and loss it's it's our hearts are wired for this so we have to be open to it um and there's there's something noble about that i think something heroic mm, yeah yeah in all in all colors and shades we are connected with everything around us and and the borders can be quite porous sorry for my bad english pronunciation mm-hmm. from from finland but in anyway this this could lead into also quite metaphysical, you know, the structure of being type of thoughts, but I think we need to leave that for another, another session. session. It's been fascinating to sit with you, Thomas, with East Palestine and uh, trying to stay open to re- reality. So thanks for, for the episode once again. Thank you, Panu. Yes, and to anyone who's listening and to the people here in East Palestine, we're, we're, we're with you and we're aware of the situation and we're feeling with you. Um, so we wish you all well, our listeners, uh, and thinking about how you're going to channel things into action. Panu and I, part of our action is doing this podcast for you. That's something that both of us feel good about, um, in terms of taking daily action and bearing witness. So you all be well and Panu, you have a good evening. Take care, everyone. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.